Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Pot and Point podcast. My name is Vladimir Bosanitz, and I'm here with my co-host, Mike McPhee. Mike, say hi. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our podcast. This is a podcast where we're going to talk about sports, business, the business of sports, and everything in between. We'll address news, we'll talk about what is interesting, and we'll put our spin and analysis on it. Yeah, we're expanding our coverage by bringing in some interesting people who are in sports and related to sports, and we can provide more insight into the topics that are relevant. A little about us. We're great friends. We're dads. We've both worked for interesting companies over the years. And most importantly, we were both college athletes, so our stories will focus on that. That's right, Vlad. We're also bringing this to you from Mobile Studios. Vlad is in Seattle, the Jet City. I'm in the Mile High City, also known as Denver, Colorado. But we have a global sports perspective, and we're going to talk about all sports, everything that we see that is interesting, and we hope you'll join us in our sports travels each and every week. All right, Vod, let's kick this off. Let's go, Mike. Mike, Anand, gentlemen, how are you? Doing great. Doing well, Vlad. Yeah. On our show today, let's welcome Anand Punjabi from London. Hope Anand becomes a regular co-host on our show here. He will be bringing to us a perspective on sports from, from Europe and especially soccer or football, as everybody else calls it around the world, mm-hmm. and other sports. But today, we introduce Anand to our pod and uh, promise him that he's going to have a high like he's never had before, right? <laughs> no pressure. No, yeah, no, no, pressure. no pressure at all. Well, you know, let's see, let's see uh, what my performance levels are like before we talk about becoming a regular. But thank you, <laughs> thank you, Mike and Vlad, for, uh, for inviting me to the show. It's a real pleasure to be here. Yes, no, sir, this will welcome. be great. This will be great. Um, before we get started, just a little preview of what we're going to talk about today. So we're going to have an interview with Brian Kopp. He's the partner and group CEO of Phoenix Sports Partners. He's one of the people that's reshaping analytics in the sports world today. So he's going to be chatting with us today later on in the show about the changing nature of uh, that field, which is very exciting. Uh, before we go into Brian's interview, uh, we're going to cover uh, the astronomical sums of money that some athletes are spending on their bodies and recovery uh, each year. Then we're going to cover the recent purchase of the Utah Jazz and kind of how, uh, how a nice return on uh, that transaction just happened in the last couple of weeks. And then before we jump over to the interview, we're going to also talk a little bit about uh, analytics and how uh, analytics in sports has brought new glory to one of uh, UK's most successful soccer teams, Liverpool. And this will be a great segue into what uh, Brian uh, will be chatting with us also. So gentlemen, ready to kick it off? Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. I'm going to kick us off today with our kind of first story here. Uh, there was an article recently in the last week or so, or maybe a couple of weeks or so, uh, I guess Russell Wilson did a podcast interview and he talked about the astronomical amount of money that he spends every year on his body recovery. Something over over a million dollars a year is, is, is what he said. Incredible. And um, the interesting about it is um, uh, he's going to, so this weekend, actually, this last weekend when they played against the 49ers in uh, Seattle, it marked his 133rd consecutive regular season start. Um, wow. which is the second longest active streak in the NFL. Mm. Um, surprisingly, the, the longest streak is held by Brett Favre, who... Brett Favre. Uh, Favre, Robert, Robert. Yes, indeed. <laughs> who started in 297 consecutive games. <laughs> Two X. Um, so Not just, halfway just insane, yet. Right. <laughs> Not halfway. Uh, 
<laughs> not even halfway. And and, and anyway, uh, Russell Wilson, it, it you know somebody someone did the math and basically said he would have to be forty two years old and halfway through the twenty thirty season for, for for him for him to get there. So I'm not sure he's going to make it, but sure. uh, you never know. But anyway, b- back to our topic of uh, how much money he's spending on uh, on his body, and he talks about how he has a whole performance team. So he's got a He's got a full-time trainer. He's got a full-time physical therapist, full-time mobile person. Um, he also has a full-time massage person, two chefs. So that's you know six people right right there wow. uh, that are with basically the family all the time. And he claims that he is working out 363 days <laughs> a year. He says Christmas and Thanksgiving is off. Every other day he's in. He's in the gym for hours doing whatever he has to do. Um, Some of us have heard about, you know, Djokovic, Novak Djokovic in tennis, kind of doing something similar. Um, LeBron James has also uh, been uh, quoted to spend a lot of money on, you know, his body too. Uh, there, there's been mention of these hyperbolic chambers, which cost as 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 much as a hundred thousand uh, dollars, where these athletes regularly use them three, four time, times a week for these recovery sessions. Um, anyway, it's it's become like basically, you know, t- table stakes, if you will. So, Anand, Mike, uh, your 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 thoughts on this? What what do you guys think about this as a kind of you know? what has to be done in order to be at your top of the game. Well, you know, I think we're going to see, and Anand, I'd love to hear your perspective there in Europe. We're, we're, we're seeing this across all kinds of sports. You just you just mentioned tennis. You, we've got LeBron James in basketball, and those are the notable guys. Um, but, you know, with, with wrapping Team Wilson around Russell, I, I'm, I'm sure it's one of the things that's led to his, his health and longevity, 130-plus games. Um, it does make you wonder when some of the guys that seem to have chronic injuries, do they – do they have these teams around them or is that kind of their next opportunity to get through those? Uh, but I, I, I'm going to guess this is just table stacks for the elites and how they, hey, they last longer. Anand, what are you seeing there in Europe? First of all, I want to know, you said he has a, he has a personal mobile trainer, what a personal <laughs> yeah. mobile guy. Is that guy someone who handles his cell phone? <laughs> could be. Verizon. It could right. be. Yeah. Maybe that one. That's, part mobility, of the entourage. Right? That's his mobility <laughs> and, 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 Stretching and got all those it, things, got right? It, got kind it. of a physio okay. kind of guy. Mobility, mobility, got it. I got yeah. you. Thought maybe it was a Verizon guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, um, there's so many components now that go into elite sport. And, you know, the, the biggest component, uh, you know, is money. You know, there, there's private equity, there's companies listed on the public market. So, and innovation, technology, technology just isn't, you know, Google, Apple, you know, Facebook, Microsoft, you know, there's, there's t- technology producing, you know, these these tools and these equipments that that help another big money industry, which is sports. So um, I imagine when these things are rapidly becoming available to these elite athletes who can afford them, they're going to try them out. They're going to use them, you know. Yeah, uh, I think I, th- I think there's a function of availability, first of all. I mean, look. We at a consumer level, we've got a choice of 15 elite mobile phones, you know, at the elite sports level, they've got they've got, you know, what, what would you say the the, the cryogenic uh, chamber, the hypo which chamber, did you say Hyper, hyperbolic, hyperbolic chamber, chamber. But maybe maybe they use cryogenic too, well, right? That, that could be well, this is it. I mean, it could very well be in use. You, know, you said Wilson's got two chefs, Cristiano Ronaldo, you know, arguably the most famous soccer player in the world. Um, you know, he has two or three chefs. He has 
multiple trainers, physiotherapists, uh, yeah. you know, uh, masseuses, etc., looking after him. You know, and if yeah. you look at his body at the age of 34, you know, it's literally like an elite 18 or 19 year old's body. He can yeah. still run yeah. quickly. You know, he, he can still last 45, 50, 60 games a season, you know, and he's been playing, I don't know, 13 seasons, 14 seasons at, at a very high level. Manchester United, Real Madrid, Juventus, the highest levels in these leagues. And 10 That's plus right. years now, 15 plus years, something correct, obnoxious, correct. right? Yeah. So, yeah. so there may be not that many athletes out there who are doing this 363 days a year. Um, but, but we expect more of them. Right. One of the things that I've, that I've sort of, as, as I was doing some research on, on, on this also, also noticed that, you know, if this is not just the availability of the equipment and the technology, but there's also a mindset. There's a, there's a really great amount of discipline for you to be able to do this. And I think Djokovic talks about it. You know, he's traveling, you know, tennis is year round now, right? There is no on season off off season, right? It's sort of, you finish one tournament, you're on, on to the next, and he talks about how he goes through this process of, you know, coming to a new place and overcoming, you know, fatigue and overcoming, you know, jet lag and being tired and hungry and, and just kind of, you know, m moving along and kind of adjusting his body and forcing himself to adjust. And, and, so, and so I think that's another thing of it is that, you know, yes, this, this technology is available. I, you know, arguably any one of the top athletes could acquire it. But it, it it involves sort of you know the usage of it, and you have to have the right mindset in order to sort of continuously use it the the right way too. Well, it's it's personal drive and ambition, right? I mean, if you there, there may there may be there may be others who have tried it, right, and said, you know what, this isn't for me. Um, they've had like you say, maybe many have access to it, but if you look at the names that we're talking about that we're familiar with, these guys are at the absolute top of their game. Right, they are yeah. they are in the in the top zero point one percent of their field. Yeah. So they have that they have that personal drive to. If you talk about Djokovic, Djokovic is in his his mid thirties, and he's yep. still beating the nineteen and twenty and twenty one year olds. You know, he's still world number one or two always. You know, he doesn't drop below doesn't drop below two unless he's injured. You know, and and he's trying to prevent those injuries by doing these things, right? That's right, and and so and so I wonder, and so I wonder, do 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 the best just get better because they can afford it, right? They can afford some of these things. They they also have the mindset maybe uh, that just that just others others don't. And that and, that, and I'm and I kind of wondering how this is going to play itself out. You know, when you look at what you know LeBron does in basketball and Russell Wilson here in football, I'm sure others. You know their competitors, their peers are going to see this, and they're going to be, hey, I, I need to, you know, I need to do what what LeBron is doing, or I need to do what Russell Wilson is doing, and and I and I wonder, like, does this become a new normal, right? And um, and will it become harder for younger athletes to ever catch up because they just don't have the resources, perhaps, to get to that level? Vlad, I've got a I got an entrepreneurial thought that comes to mind around this, and maybe maybe this is a structure here. Is that you know the the, the folks that are working on their own, they're they're mostly solopreneurs. You know, they're they're not going to maybe ever hit that next level. But we see guys that are the names you've thrown out there. They don't just have these 
these teams around them for their their health and well-being. They they've got marketing teams around them. They've got financial teams around them and they're they're effectively CEOs of enterprises, right? And and these what's their revenue? Their revenue's 50, 75 million dollars a year. Yeah. Um and and effectively they're they're trying to prolong that as long as they can as as their window is yeah. you know, with a historical lens their window would close in maybe their low to mid 30s. And we're now seeing these things go in the upper 30s and, and into their 40s. What, what's Djokovic? Djokovic, what, 35, 36? Federer's, what, 39? I think 34, maybe. I yeah. think he's a little younger Tom Brady, than Brady, 43 and, years old. Yeah. LeBron's, what, 36? You know, so these guys are defining a new normal for us. Yeah. And and, and they're, these are enterprises, right? So the enterprise, as, as you put it, Mike, is the body, which kind of brings me to my next couple of points, which is you know, biology. <laughs> One of them is biology, which okay. means, you know, you're doing all this stuff to your, to your body. You're, you're exerting this, you know, pressure on it and you're constantly working out. You know, this is not like you can just sort of, you know, remove a widget and put in a new widget and then it's, and it just sort of functions again, right? You're, you're dealing with, with, you know, bodies and, you know, you know, ligaments and muscles and bones that at some mm-hmm. point just stop working and organs just stop working the way that they, that they were working when you were maybe 20 or 30. Mm-hmm. And I wonder I wonder and we I don't th- I don't think that we have enough data at this point to understand what the impact of this sort of extreme kind of um you know care if you will of the body will will do to it. But I wonder in the next, you know, 10 years when LeBron hits his mid 40s and Djokovic hits his mid 40s we start to see some of the consequences of this. And I also wonder then what that does to them mentally. I think there's a mental health component here that I think will be very interesting to watch. And I think we, we you know, saw a glimpse of that with Michael Phelps and I think with Missy Franklin. Both of them were, you know, very brave enough to come out and, and you know, talk about some of the, the difficulties that they've encountered as they've exited, you know, this, you know, high performing kind of, you know, world. And in, you know, I I know in Mr. Franklin's case, you know, she is like in pain, in like real, real pain. Um and 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 I wonder how this plays itself out over the next decade. Yeah, you know, that does we'll 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 watch for that. But I think I think the question then on the table is how do they wind down when their when their performing days are over? And I'll throw one one other story into this is that there's now become like a thing, a contest for NFL linemen that when they retire, how quickly can they shrink their bodies down to everyday bodies? And it's been remarkable what they do. It's remarkable what they do. Why Um, do they want to do that? Because they're just well because too big. They're just enormous for them to maintain. You know, they're they're six two, six three, six four to maintain three hundred plus pounds on their body. They're eating at all times of the night. They're waking themselves up eating shakes. Like you can read the stories. They're they're consuming five thousand calories a day. Wow. And and yeah. then when when they retire, there's been this six month sprint, nine month sprint. They're still world class athletes, very competitive, and they're sprinting to try to get down to say. 230, 240, lose 50, 60 pounds and start their new life. But then, as you said, Vlad, but does that create all these different mental issues? Um, as they've wound down their professional career, their identity's changed, and now they've got this holy, they're chasing this different body. And it's just, um, I think there's some unknowns out there. Um, so, interesting story that you're surfacing here, Vlad, uh, around uh, this team Wilson and the other guys that are doing it for the other stars. Yeah, I think mental health. Um... I don't think you need to necessarily even, you know, be punishing yourself uh, 
you know, throughout the year um, to have this big come down from from you know the elite level of uh, you know playing at that elite level. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that's a big issue, and maybe that that's a that's a great great topic for another day. But um, you know, what are elite what how are elite athletes managing their lives? after you know being in the spotlight for for 15 20 years yeah yeah top yeah tackle being literally on top of the world yeah right? some uh, some have managed it very well and some are you yeah. know in poverty have yeah having Absolutely. a hard time yeah. with it yeah. yeah well i've got our our second story we're going to talk about here today and it's a transaction that is i don't think it's finalized but it's it's made the headlines over this last week to 10 days and that's uh in the nba so the utah jazz were uh, have been recently uh, reported to have closed the deal to be sold to the founder of the analytics company called Qualtrics. Background on Qualtrics, um, we have a gentleman that founded it, Ryan Smith. It's an analytics company, and they were sold in 2018 for the nice sum of $8 billion to the global enterprise software company of SAP. And so right. he had a very nice exit off of a company that he founded. And uh, he's now he's got deep pockets now, and 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 like any any righteous billionaire does, you go out looking for your sports team, right? Isn't that kind yeah. of the next phase of life after you <laughs> you jump into those billions? This uh, is this is what Mark Cuban calls the BBC, the Billionaire Boys Club. <laughs> okay, well there there he's we a, go. He's a, well, he's a founding member of that one. Yeah, bet. right. Yes. So this this gentleman joined that club a couple years back. Um, you know, in 2018. So he's gone shopping and, and he is a lifelong Salt Lake City guy. Uh, he founded his company in Provo, which is just right off of Salt Lake. But so he ends up buying the Utah Jazz. A couple stats here that stand out for me, guys, that, that I wanted to just surface and, and we can just kick around a little bit. So first one is that the, the Utah Jazz were, were bought by the, the preceding owners, the Miller family in the mid 80s for a total of $26 million. And then this week, the transaction is reported to be $1.6 billion. Wow. So, um, yeah, I, I can only just say, wow, that's such yeah. such an incredible return on investment. And and a couple different step functions have happened that, that's led us here. So so most deals in the 80s, that $26 million was kind of in line with a couple of with how most deals in the NBA were on, on transactions. But then in the 2000s, they jumped up. They jumped up to two hundred million to four hundred million. It was the nice range sort as ten x as, yeah, as teams were like, changing yeah. hands. Just you know, 10, 15 years later, as you as you land there in the early two thousands. But then in twenty tens, we had some more notable jumps. Still some two hundred million dollar transactions. I think the Pacers went for two hundred something million. Um, but but then we had the two point two billion dollar transaction for the Houston Rockets just two years back, right, Vlad, or three years back in twenty seventeen. So yep. so we've entered into the billionaires game where, where you've got, you know, Balmer bought the the Clippers for a couple billion. So just wow, those numbers just jump off the page on on the growth in that industry. Um, but a second thing for me, guys, here is given the current events, you know, just the pandemic and where revenues and outlooks have so much uncertainty to have a transaction go through. Um, maybe that's just notable that one went through in these current times. But secondarily, for a number that's in line with some of these other transactions is um, I thought was 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 noteworthy because there really didn't seem to be too much of a discount uh, to move that team. Um, but then third, the big one for me, guys, I just want to get your take is Utah is a small market team. 
um, probably in the in the smallest five teams with OKC and Milwaukee, New Orleans, probably some of the smaller market guys. And for them to command that $1.6 billion, I wonder if if the uncertainty of things, that high valuation, what, what are the big market guys looking at? And, and are they spinning up their teams to say, is now a time where we shop around our particular franchise? And this is NBA, but does that send a signal to other leagues? Guys, what are some of your thoughts around uh, this transaction and, and, and kind of how this fits in the in current times? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I've that I've kind of observed on this, I actually listened to uh, a podcast not too long ago. Uh, Mark Cuban was being interviewed about you know the you know the value of a team in the NBA and if yep. it's if it's, if it was a worthwhile investment and what's going to happen to the value of his investment. And he basically said it's only going up. And right. part of it is you know they're they're not they're not making money just selling seats anymore, right? Um, you know, games. This is like a huge enterprise and and. Part of the, the way that the the contracts are also are also structured, you you might be a, a smaller market team. Now I don't know how to do it in the NBA, but I know in the NFL, for instance, uh, every team gets an equal share yes. of the uh, of the rights yes. from um, you know TV rights and yeah. and all all this other stuff. Yes. So so it sort of doesn't matter kind of where where you are. Actually, being in a smaller market might be better for you because you're. Your your cost structure could be could cost be lower, basis. right? Yeah, for sure. Right, um, and and so I think you know we're probably going to see this um, expanding. It is a it is a finite group of uh, teams when you think about it, right? Which which means it's a it's a it's a finite opportunity for for you know people to compete against them, right? And and I think because of that, um, you know, I I have yet to see the you know the value of a of a you know franchise go down in 30, 40 years, um, and I I would imagine the same is in Europe too, Anand, right? I suppose, um, you know, when we talk about these numbers getting bigger and bigger, you you know, we said that uh, you know once once you've made it in your business uh, and you're a billionaire boy now and you're going to go buy a sports team. Mm-hmm. There are just that many more of them, I suppose, right? There are just that many more billionaires <laughs> out there. Uh, let's let's face it. You know, you pick up right. you pick up right. Forbes, or you pick up the Sunday Times Rich List, or any other publication that ranks uh, wealth around the world. There are just that many more, you know, multi billionaires out there. And mm-hmm. you know, what's the best trophy to pick up? It's a nice it's a nice sports team. So whether mm-hmm. you know if, you know if 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 the Lakers are not available or the Yankees are not available, right? Okay, who else is available? Um, and if there aren't that many for sale, well, then, you know, if you're looking at an elite, a, a team in 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 the top tier league, whether it's the NBA, whether it's La Liga, whether it's the Premier League, whether it's major leagues in baseball, they're probably going to be pretty high value because there's just not not that many for sale. Scarcity, yeah. right? Yeah. And and I think in economic terms, I, I think Anand, you hit the nail on the head here. In economic terms, you have a finite resource, and you have a growing, you know, you you have, you have a growing demand, yeah. growing pool of right? buyers. In, yeah, in a sense that your pool of buyers has now, you know, grown. I don't know. Maybe there were fifty billionaires twenty, thirty years ago. And now there's two thousand, right? Right. right. Um, so you have more people who are looking to buy this kind of stuff, and they're going to drive drive the value up. Look at the owners of the Premier League. I think seventy five percent of the owners of Premier League teams are not English or not British, right? <laughs> it's, You're right. We have Russians. Yeah. We have we have four or five uh, American companies that own Premier Some League out of teams. Asia. Yeah. Chinese, two or three yeah, from the Middle, Middle East. So, you know, there the, are the, the, plenty of people in that billionaire boys club. 
Yeah, no, no doubt. I'll throw one one area to watch though, and that I've read some. I'm sure you guys have seen this too. Is that a number of teams globally have taken on on cash to to run their businesses, to run the sports team, and and they've generally gone out because money's so cheap. At least it is domestically. I don't know if money's cheap across the planet. You but, you mean you mean borrow when yeah, you, when you say take out cash? Yeah, they're they're borrowing cash to to run their team right now because they're not getting that cash flow from games. Right, they're not getting that that in game revenue from seats and such. And, and it makes me wonder, though, um, how long they can do that um, and how long they'll be able to draw down that, those cash uh, reserves or do they have to throw off some money from their other parts of their enterprise or, or, or their holdings to, to support the sports team if we go out a couple years where revenues are compromised with in-game experiences. So just thought I'd throw that out there. That's one of the question marks um, that's, that's been thrown around some of the different teams. It's a huge question. Where, what, 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 happens to, what happens to sports at all levels um, yeah. given, given the pandemic? You know, when are, pe- when are, when are uh, stadium revenues going to ever return? Right. Well, and this is a topic for another day, but does pay-per-view kind of change that, right? And not only on TV, but internet, uh, you know, different devices, different platforms. You know, is there, is there a play f- to replace those butts and seats physically to virtual butts and seats, right? And then now you're not limited to, you know, 50, 60, 70,000 people in a stadium anymore. You're you're going global. Right? No question. Um, no anyway, question. I know we're gonna talk about this in the in the future, but that's that could be that could be a way to do that too. Right. Yeah, and I no think, question. I think well, that is definitely coming. I mean we can continue to throw other just little irons on the fire. I got one more and then maybe we'll put our bow on this one. Is that we, you said Mark Cuban earlier? I've seen Cuban in stories saying the sports valuations are gonna skyrocket due to gambling. Um and, and we know oh. gambling's coming around every corner we look here domestically. On on I know there's a different profile in Europe and, and maybe you guys have the head start on us, but um what not to go down this rat hole, but that's one of the things Cuban has said. Hey, valuations are going to go up because of gambling's legality and the increasing uh, values around it. So um, I, I, I suppose we'll be talking about this valuation of sports franchises, transactions and things, because this is our second one, Vlad. We talked Mets, you know, a couple of shows yep. back. Um, and here we got the Jazz. And I think it surfaces some interesting angles about the, the economics of, yeah, of sport. Yeah, yeah, 100%. So that's what I've got 100%. on that one, Vlad. Nice one, Anand, all right. Anand, I think you're up next, my friend. Okay. So I wanted to talk a little bit uh, briefly just about um, sleepy old traditional sport of soccer. Um, not The beautiful you know, game. Traditionally big on stats, <laughs> you know, not, not big on data. Uh, you know, it's, it's not a sport that, uh, you know, a sport that is flowing, that is always in motion, not many stops and starts. How do you, how do you find useful data uh, and then use it to some kind of competitive advantage. Um, And there really hasn't been a lot of that until maybe about the last uh, 10 years or so. In the Premier League, uh, Chelsea were the first team to create a dedicated sports analytic or data data analytics department in 2008. Mm -hmm. And a few years later, Arsenal, they bought a team, a US company called uh, StatDNA to essentially help them to use whatever data was available, or in fact, to, to create data using technology to help them get a competitive edge. You know, I'd say Chelsea, that may have helped them a little bit because they, they won some titles since then. Yeah. Arsenal, since 2014, they've done nothing. So maybe they need, to, uh, they need to sell that company and, <laughs> Dry spell. And, and buy another one. I'm not sure. Yeah. But the team that probably has had the, uh, the edge now 
in the area of data, data analytics uh, in the Premier League has been Liverpool. Uh, Liverpool, current Premier League champions, Champions League winners in 2019, just over a year ago, mm-hmm. and they finished second in the Premier League that season with with the highest points total that a second place team has ever had. Yep. They would have won every Premier League and old First Division title except for two with that points total. So Whoa. literally for two... Going th- like 50 years or something, 60 years back, their points total? Yeah, I mean, we're talking, you Incredible. know, the league started in 18... Oh, my. 1870-something or the other, if you're, if you're <laughs> counting back from then. So wow. even when you adjust the old two points for a win to today's three points for a win, yeah. they, they would have won them all except two, the one that they lost that season by one point to Man City, and the year before that when Man City had a fantastic 100 points. So, wow, so, incredible. So they, they've managed to, to kind of come out of, you know, years of mediocrity and now, you know, are considered, you know, one of the elite teams in, in, European, in European football. And again, you know, they, they had an American owner who came in, or new American owners who came in over 10 years ago and really took the sleeping giant and, you know, and, and woke it up. Uh, John Henry, the owner of, of or the, 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 the the chief principal, if you like, behind uh, Fenway Sports Group that owns Liverpool, you know, he was a, you know, he, he's a, he's a commodities trader. He's, he's, he's a very smart man, great math brain. He loves his statistics, you know, and he's applied that to fantastic success with the Boston Red Sox um, that you'll be familiar with, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, a little bit yeah, like yeah. Liverpool, you know, they had won no World Series for many, many years and then went and won, what, two or three in the last 10 years? There's two or three yes, in the absolutely. last two or three in the last 10, I think, 15 I think, years. Yeah, I think four overall in the last 15 when you stretch out a little bit. So, so you can see that, you know, uh, from, from, from being nowhere for decades to being extremely successful, you know, you've got yes. to thank John Henry and his team for that. And he's taken that approach across the pond to England, uh, to Liverpool. And Liverpool now have the success that they used to have back in the 70s mm. and 80s. And they use data. They've gone all in on recruiting PhD physicists from Harvard, from Cambridge, you know, who are studying quantum mechanics. Uh, you know, these were their research topics and are now applying yeah. it, you know, to, to, to modeling where players move on the pitch, you know, how many passes they complete, what are the good passes they complete. And, and, and you know, we talk about marginal gains. If you can make a 1% gain, you know, in performance every month or every couple of months, well, over time, that adds up to a lot. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Liverpool hired hired a gentleman by the name of Ian Graham, you know, physics uh, physicist from Cambridge University, um, and he's studying quantum mechanics, you know, theories about polymers wow. and and proteins. And you've got to wonder what the hell has that got to do with, you know, scoring goals in the Premier League, corner kicks and and right. <laughs> this is it. Like a you pass know, completion. <laughs> what has one thing got to and- do with another? And one more thing that it, and it's and it's not just you know putting the right team together and having having the right squad on the on the pitch, but the, there there's an added twist in Europe where you know you can actually increase the value of a player and trade trade you know buy him for a certain amount, trade him for a much higher amount, right? So you're kind of starting to play those those numbers against this stuff as well, correct? So you're absolutely right, Vlad. And um, I, I consider I consider what Ian's doing in this particular area of his job uh, as value investing. You know, so yes. if, you, if you're a fan, you know, of, um, of Jeff Bogle, uh, you know, in the investment game, 
or Warren Buffett, you know, these guys are, are the are the classic value investors. And and Ian Graham is the value investor of the of, of the Premier League. You know, he wow. he found uh, a player, um, a Brazilian player who's now very well known and probably wasn't so back in the day, Felipe Coutinho, you know, who really was 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 a nobody uh, when he came to Liverpool. And he was really a key player in two two very important ways. One his his performance on the pitch, the goals he scored, the assists he made, allowed Liverpool to really move up one, two, three, four levels to become this elite team that they are today. You know, his partnership with players like Luis Suarez, Raheem Sterling, uh, Steven Gerrard before he retired, you know, he proved his worth on the pitch. But, you know, get this, you talk about ROI, we talked about ROI earlier with the Utah Jazz. Liverpool sold Coutinho to FC Barcelona from to La Liga for a profit of over $130 million. Wow. One player. Yeah. Wow. One player made a profit uh, to Liverpool for $130 million. That's worth the uh, the analytics, I would say. Yeah, <laughs> the I analytics mean, team is, and everybody on that team. Such an interesting angle. Hadn't, hadn't thought of where John Henry, the soybean commodities trader, has just now found a new playground. Right. And and now he's found his analytics team and this Ian Graham. Is that is that basically what he's done here and and finding his value stocks out there to 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 trade up eventually and win games and and certainly win games well, as a yes. primary directive? This is the yeah. thing. This is the thing. When it comes to Premier League, you know, we were talking about ROI. You know, these guys are still in it for the money. At the end of the day, you know, some owners they they understand yeah. the the fans and they understand the fans want to win trophies, um, you know they want to win championships. But but some owners they just want to get an ROI on their investment. And I think wow. Henry's got the balance right. If you look at today's value of Liverpool, which is largely comprised of the value of the player contracts. Okay. Okay. And yes. Okay. There's a stadium and there's a media rights and you know some of that other other commercial stuff. It's you know they're going they're going to make a a 5 6x 7x 8x return if they choose to sell in today's market if if they're going to hold on for a little bit longer you know it could be it could be even higher and yes data plays a big part in the way john henry's always thought and clearly he's brought his commodities trading mindset and the data needed in order to unearth value and to create returns to his sports teams. And, and he's hired these physicists, he's hired these data scientists. Liverpool have six data scientists, you know, working wow. in, in this in this division now. They're not this is this is fairly new for soccer. You know, they're not they're not too many teams who've thought about this, but they will, obviously, because the data is available. It's just how you use it and whether you recruit the bright minds to create the algorithms, to create the software in house to generate the data that you want. Do we do we see then Liverpool continuing on their track? Do do you see there Anand? Do you see the potentially increasing the portfolio? Didn't we just see that that John Henry's group has gone public in this last week or two? Didn't they didn't they put their whole portfolio of companies into a public bundle? Yes, uh, Red Ball Sports or something to that effect. Correct. They're looking. And then I wonder if that. he if they're looking to increase their holdings. You know, as you look across. Uh, Europe or other areas and, and see where that goes, right? And also, what are other teams doing? Like, are they trying to emulate this and kind of copy essentially, you know, what, you know, Liverpool is doing, right? Are, are there, and I don't know if there's any other stories from from the continent, uh, you know, Anand, that, 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 are, that have, you know, bubbled up of other teams doing something similar. 
right? Because I, I, I imagine on, on a very basic level, you know, some of these owners and executives, you know, are employing their kind of analytics inside their head, right? But ha- have you heard of anyone else kind of doing this, or is it still kind of under under the wraps? All the all the elite teams are doing it now because the data is available to buy. So, you know, the the leagues will strike a deal with these data analytics companies, and it's up to the individual teams to subscribe to the service if they want it. You know, and whether it's affordable to them. I haven't researched any specific uh, stories of other teams around Europe uh, or around the world that are spending a lot of money on this data data analytics. But once you see one or two doing it, I don't think the barriers to entry are that high. You know, there are plenty of great PhDs out there, plenty of smart people, mathematicians, statisticians. I think it's a question, again, of mindset. Do they believe that these little 0.5%, 1% incremental gains you can make by extracting just that little bit of juice from the data available um, will make a difference to the performance of the team on the field, uh, which gets you that extra five points a season or extra 10 points a season. Well, that that does translate into money as well. It translates into winning the league, coming second in the league, you know, winning a quarterfinal, then that gets you to the second, gets you to the semifinal. I don't think data at this stage is the be all and end all of success. And even, even Ian Graham at Liverpool will tell you, listen, I just make suggestions to Jurgen Klopp. That's right. Okay. That's right. And and you know he may go out and say, okay, you've told me that these three players are great. Their stats are fantastic. But when I interviewed them, the guy was a jerk. You know, he right. he, he was not going to fit the chemistry of my team. And I think yep. we can probably all agree that chemistry plays a great role in sporting success in team sports. A hundred percent, a hundred percent, and and I think I think ultimately, you know, as a former athlete, when you think about like what is what is kind of the most important thing, it, it is that chemistry. And can you can you model that chemistry? I think that's it's hard. I think you would have to define what what you know chemistry is and what are the pieces that comprise it, and then maybe you can say, okay, I'm improving this lever and this lever and that lever, so therefore now I am improving chemistry, right? I think that may be the holy grail. We're not quite there yet. But having said that, this is a great segue into our interview with Brian Kopp. So he's going to talk about analytics in general, in sports overall, and how this is transforming transforming the space. Um, as I said at the top of the hour, he's the CEO of Phoenix Sports Partners. And uh, when we come back, we're going to have a great chat with him. I'm really looking forward to this. That's great. Vlad and I really enjoy doing the Pot on Point podcast, and we hope that you like listening to us gab about our favorite subjects, sports, pop culture, and business. We hope that you also learn something from our experiences and that we bring the forefront important news about the industries that in many ways shape our lives each and every day. If you like our podcast, please subscribe and tell your friends, family members, and colleagues about it. Write a review and let us know what you think about our work and how we can make it better. You can also suggest stories that we should be picking up. Our contact information is in the show notes. Thank you for your time, and thank you for letting us know how we can be on point. Brian, good morning. Good to have a chat with you. How are you? I'm great. I said be on with you guys. Yeah, yeah. Where do we find you today? Where are you? I'm in uh, chilly Chicago, where it's uh, definitely (laughs) starting to become winter, whether we like it or not. Okay. October is showing up. 
yes. We've already had our snow here, Brian, so we've already played snow football in the backyard, and then today it's going to be like 70, so. Yeah. <laughs> well, Brian, thanks for joining us. Thanks for taking the time to speak with us. We're, we're looking forward to, to this conversation with you, just as kind of a, um, you know, as a, as, a, as a way of introduction. Would you mind telling us a little bit about, you know, w- what you do, your company, kind of your experience in this, in this industry? Sure. So I am with a group called Phoenix Sports Partners. We are a investment and operating company focused on sports data and technology companies. And I've been in the sports space myself for the last 12 years. Um, Vlad obviously went to business school together and I had other like normal jobs and then kind of fell my way into sports in 2008 when I joined um, Stats, which is now Stats Perform. Uh, Worked on some new technology there went on to catapult sports. And then really for the last three and a half years, I've been dealing with a lot of early stage sports data and technology companies. So our group invests in them, but also help to operate them. So I wear, uh, I wear many, many hats uh, figuratively. And usually these days I, I'm wearing a hat or two. Yeah. <laughs> or whatever team you're pitching to, I suppose. That's right. right? That's right. <laughs> Um, so when, when most people think of sports statistics, they, they kind of think of like the stats that, you know, flash on, you know, the bottom of the screen during play, or they think of like, you know, the sheets that, you know, are handed over to coaches during, during, you know, half times or things like that. Uh, but statistics is, has, has made inroads into, into the sports. I think some of the people obviously have seen the movie kind of Moneyball and read the book Moneyball, and they kind of equate that with what we're talking about. But for the benefit of our audience, would, would you mind kind of giving us a little bit of a, you know, kind of a background, you know, maybe the last sort of 10, 15 years, how has this space evolved? Yeah, and it's, it's really rapidly evolved in the last, I'd say, five to seven years. Um, you know, Moneyball really started with companies like Stats, the one I was at. They're actually mentioned many times in that book. And, and it really started with um, what, what I described Moneyball. It wasn't about collecting new information. It was about using the information you have differently. Uh, what Belly Bean did with Moneyball is he, he had the same data everybody else did. He just used it differently. And he looked for different ways of interpreting it. And he looked for different ways of finding inefficiencies. Um, and, you know, all of us who have worked in other industries, because like I said, before 2008, I worked in many other industries. And using data to make your company better to make in in sports world your team better that's just what you do in sports that was never really part of it it was always a gut feel a coaching thing and so the data experience started in the in the 90s and in early 2000s with things like moneyball i think what's happened in the last decade really the last five seven years is an explosion of new information and data uh, Part of that has been my personal fault, I'll be honest, because when I was at Stats, we had a technology <laughs> called SportView, which was collecting data in NBA games where we were collecting using optical tracking cameras, XY coordinates for all the players in the ball 15 times a second. So you went from having this normal play-by-play data to suddenly having literally like a million data points per game thrown at you. And you had to make sense of it. And so when people start equating that to Moneyball, I would always kind of say, well, Moneyball was using data you have in a unique way. The new era is using using and collecting new type of data that's never existed before. So that includes what's going on in the game. It includes what's going on in practice. So another company I worked at, at Catapult, where you use a wearable device to collect all your movements in practice. So it's really exploded behind the scenes. And then you know the other thing that you're seeing more and more on the screen is gambling information. 
So all of this data is being used behind the scenes for teams, but increasingly it's being used to set lines and do things in game. And so data is becoming a part of everything we do. So, you know, Moneyball, it's funny when you watch that movie now, you read that book now, it feels a lot older than it is because, you know, they were using data that already existed way back when. Now there's just all kinds of new data that's available and it's creating new opportunities and new challenges. Yeah, that's interesting that it, it, you see something like Moneyball and it's on one line, it's not that long ago, but then now it's there's so many players that that's just it's just table stakes, it seems. Right. So who, who's really who's really active in this five year period? Who are some of the pace setters that are standing out? So Catapult, you've, you mentioned Sportsview, you mentioned I think we got something going on in the NFL where they've got something in their shoulder pads. What are, what are some of the kind of the leaders and maybe some of the teams or leagues that are leading the pack? Yeah, it really does. It really does differ by sport and by league. Right. And, 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 and they've all had their own evolutions. Um, I'll kind of start there and then I'll back into some of the, the companies and where they fit into it. So on the sports side, mm-hmm. believe it or not. So baseball is viewed as the, as a forefront because of Moneyball. Um, they mm-hmm. kind of fell behind for a while. And the reason I say that is because they weren't collecting new and unique data and using it different ways. Um, who really took a huge leap forward was, was the NBA. And again, a lot of that, you know, it sounds self-serving, but a lot of that was because of what we were doing with SportView and, and suddenly opening up a whole new area of information and, and somewhat related to this whole, you know, movement of three pointers. I mean, you know, some people equate that to new data. Honestly, it wasn't that. I mean, someone woke up and said, Hey, take two steps back and three points is worth more than two points. I mean, it's very simple math in that standpoint, but the complication was mm-hmm. finding the right people that could fit certain systems in certain ways and creating new a- aspects for that. So I think the NBA was at the forefront of it. It started with the mindset. So people like Daryl Morey, who's in the news again, leaving Houston and, and uh, potentially going to the Sixers, he actually started his career at Stats way back when. And so he was one of the first guys I dealt with oh, wow. when we were dealing with SportView. So they were already thinking about this. They were just missing the right data. So we came along and fit a need. It's not like we created a, a need. We fit a need because they were looking for more information. So I think basketball has been at the forefront of it. Um, I think football has been catching up. So you mentioned the chips and the shoulder pads. That's a company called Zebra that does that. Um, and they collect mm-hmm. all the movement of data during the games. There's also a chip. Not not a lot of people realize this. There's a chip in the ball as well. Uh, so Wilson, who creates the official oh, wow. ball, has a chip in there. Again, they're collecting a lot of data. They're still trying to figure out what to do with it. I mean, as you all know, football is very much a, a chess game. And there's a lot that goes on during a game. And um, there's people like there was a former employee of mine who was working for the Denver Broncos. He was on the headset with the head coach as their head of analytics. That's still very rare. Most of the time they do a lot of prep for the game during the game. They're not, they're not necessarily looking at statistics, but there's small subtle things changing. Like, you know, they, they work on, on fourth down. You see them going for fourth down a lot more than they used to. So, yeah. And, and I have a quick follow up on, yeah. on that, Brian. So, so how much of this is now kind of real time, right? Real time inside the game versus analytics of kind of post game or pre game or practice kind of stuff. Maybe just just to, just to give us sort of a sense of how sure. deep this has penetrated into. into no, it's a, it's a great point because it does start doing it real time and doing it accurately in real time is very, very hard from a data collection standpoint. And then once you do that, getting the teams comfortable enough to use it. So it's getting better. Um, a lot of that football data is available in real time. The teams aren't allowed to use it during the game. So there's restrictions around what you can have access to. 
the real-time nature becomes really important as it relates to other uses. So not necessarily by the team, but by media. And, and again, as we talked about earlier, specifically gambling. They need that fast. They need to set the lines. They need to be able to create new things during game. So the use of that data is really important. But, you know, I think the evolution of it has been interesting because there's a lot more data available. There's, there's teams that are coming around to how you use it, and it does differ by, by sport. I think the baseball has been catching up now to get back to them. So they collect a lot of data on every pitch, on every movement. You see that in the way you see shifts in, in the field, like they're using data in different ways. So everybody is much more data savvy and data centric. When I got started back in 2008, um, you know, it was in the, in the rare cases where people are using data. Now you really can't get away with it. If you, you position yourself as a coach that doesn't listen to data, then it, it's really hard to, to position yourself as, as someone to, that's on the cutting edge and, and should be out there still having a job. So every sport has been catching up. Even hockey is starting to implement uh, tracking data as well. So I think they're all starting to catch up at various levels. You know, it was interesting being in the World Series this week. There was two different angles I uh, want to get your take. One of them was that uh, one of the Dodgers had performed better this year, but his video, in-game video experience was taken away from him. Uh, so he would he would go in any time he was back in the dugout, he would go hang out in a small room. But with COVID, they said you can't hang out in those rooms. So he couldn't watch in-game video, but his stats actually went up. But then they contrasted with a guy who played for the White Sox who couldn't do the same thing, and his stats went down. So it's kind of small sample size. But that in-game element is, plus video is is an extra deal. But I wanted to get your perspective. You mentioned uh, that there's something around uh, if you're a laggard, if you're a coach that is, is denies the value of data, you're, you're probably getting crowded out. Just this week, though, with this World Series, you had the announcers uh, talking about pulling the pitcher based upon the stats. And, you know, we've always seen Charles Barkley's he's always making fun of the stats and you got to go with feel like what's what's kind of the insider's view of that? Is that just what we see from the announcers, but everyone else is kind of embracing it within the teams or are there laggards and, and, and resistors that are there and they're kind of being crowded out? What do you see there? It's a little bit of both. I mean, I think, you know, it's a it's an interesting storyline. There's still the, you know, kind of stats versus coaching. People kind of want to position it mm-hmm. as you're either a, a data geek or you understand the sport. There, that, that shouldn't be the case. Like, it, that, you don't have to choose one. I've, I've been the one that, that always said from the very beginning, it's not a choice. You need both. You're not going to be successful mm-hmm. using just data. And honestly – that, you know, people like Daryl Morey would tell you that you still need to have good coaching. You still need to make the right decisions. And most of the people that are known as data geeks in the sports world, they spend more time around the sport than anybody I know. So they know the sport as well. It doesn't have to be one or the other. I think that um, so it is a little bit of a narrative for the public. And it's, it's easy to say, hey, yeah. you know, you're always going to have the gruffer they typically be older guys are like, Hey, I'm not going to use that. We all know with statistics, <laughs> it's about probabilities. And there's times in which you might make the right quote unquote statistical decision and it doesn't go your way. It doesn't mean it's hundred percent. And so I'm not saying pulling his picture was the right thing, but you know, statistics might've said that was the right thing to do. And guess what? It didn't work out. That's going to happen. I mean, nothing's hundred percent. And and so it's about playing the odds. That's really what people are doing. And people don't want to hear that because sports have an emotional context and, Coaches are a part of it and players are part of it. and and But, you know, there is an element of that for sure. Brian, we've talked seemingly around some things around in-game and around game uh, prep and things like that. Can you take us a little bit through the journey on how they're using these things in practice 
around performance management or the health of an athlete recovery, those type things. Can you take us through that side of the industry? Yeah, because that's a, that's a side that I've been in for quite some time now as well. And it's an evolution. And the evolution has been a couple of different areas. It's very interesting. That is the one area where the U.S. was not the leader uh, within the statistical um, data collection space. Every other space within scouting, game analysis, the United States and their sports teams were the leaders. In the performance side, it was internationally. It was European football. It was in Australia. So the company I worked for, Catapult, was an Australian company. And so there were other pockets of the of the sporting world where they were much more advanced around collecting, using data. They had people on staff that were sports scientists, or more importantly, you hear high performance director as a new, new title. Um, in the U.S., it was normally the strength coach. To them, training was you, you, strength coach helps you in the weight room. And if you're hurt, go to the trainer. That was it. Now it's a much more holistic approach of using information and data. So collecting what you do in practice and tying that back in the game has been very important. And you do that through wearables, you do that through camera, you, you do that through just collecting other data around the athlete. I think that is the next evolution of where this goes is collecting more and more data to be able to identify players and help them progress. One of the most frustrating things for coaches and, and organizations is when your best players aren't on the field or the court. It's hard to win. If LeBron James gets hurt in the playoffs, the Lakers probably don't win the, the, the championship. So you got to make sure your best players are out there at their peak performance. And there's a lot of energy and effort around doing that right now. That's an interesting uh, point you bring up, Brian, actually on the uh, kind of the you know daily use of, of, of this stuff and uh, athlete training is just from kind of, you know, remembering from, you know, my days when, when I played, a, you know, basketball at Georgetown, you know, you would sort of come in day one, they would give you, you know, a pair of shoes or two pairs of shoes. Everybody gets the same pair of shoes, right? Everybody gets the same kind of equipment. I, I think these days, um, and just kind of watching things evolve as, as, as I'm following my kids sort of through, through, through sports, we, you know, went to visit a, you know, a college camp actually last year, and they were going over all of the sort of intricate details of how each player is being, you know, monitored for nutrition and weight training and what equipment they wear and in this case this was volleyball you know how many jumps they take during practice and they count that stuff right uh after how many practices you change shoes and you know things like that because it you know helps your ankles and your knees and hips and that kind of stuff which you know back in like you know 25 30 years ago all of that was just like you know son go out go out and get it right <laughs> that, that was sort of the <laughs> attitude right um so it has really really changed um, so one of the things, you know, also, you know, as you, uh, you know, as a, as a, as you know, somebody who's been in this, in this world, selling these services to sports teams, you know, how, how does, how does that go? I mean, um, you know, at some point, like, like you said, some of them are probably resisting this or were resisting this. Right. But at the same time, you know, if, if you sell it to one team, you know, are, are they going to want you to not sell it to somebody else? You know, th this is a competitive business, obviously, right? So, so how does how does that dynamic work? Yeah, it's an interesting balance, um, especially in those early days when you know you had you had the the double challenge of introducing something new to an organization where you're normally you weren't replacing something they already had, you were introducing something new, which isn't always easy, especially for coaches and teams that are creatures of habit. And then, secondly, exactly what you just said, Vlad, which is the the competitive nature of these teams if i'm doing something i don't want someone else to do it or i don't want you to work with someone else who's doing it because you're going to tell them all of my secrets the, the 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 little thing is first of all 
not, not only would we never do that, the fact is 90% of what teams are doing is the same. Like no one likes to say it, but they're all doing similar things. It's not like somebody's doing some amazing revolutionary thing no one's ever thought of. They're all doing the same type of stuff. And it's really about, you know, some of it is picking the right players, picking the right, having the right culture. And then you got to get things to, to fall your way, right? There is an, an element of luck in it. But it, it was always an interesting, delicate balance where um, you'd have to make sure that you're respecting what people do. There are some teams that were very protective about you being even in their facility. Um, and so you got to be very respectful around that. Um, but at the same time, it gives you some credibility. If they know you're working with some other teams, at least they know they're not the only one. I mean, you, I always joke with people and, and it differs by sport, but you can, there's, there's this group that's the, it's just like the, the, the typical technology adoption curve, right? There, there's early adopters that'll try things just because, and then there's that, that middle group that wants to know they weren't the first ones, but they don't want to be the last ones. And then there's those laggards that no matter what, they're going to come like kicking and screaming. And, uh, and it kind of differs by, by league and by team and what you're talking about, but it does hold up true to the typical adoption curve there. So it, it's an interesting balance, though. you got to be careful about what you say around certain teams and, and make sure you don't drop too many other teams and references and that you've been, yeah. you, know, you know, and tell someone, hey, I was just in, you know, this team's facility the other day and now I'm here with you. They don't usually don't like hearing that. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Um, how is this, uh, you know, working itself through college versus versus pro? Yeah, it's been, again, also another evolution. A lot of this stuff starts at the professional leagues because one, they typically have more budgets, but more importantly, they have the staff. They have people that could experiment with things and work with things and invest the time. On the college level, they might have a little bit more. Again, I'd say this in kind of, you know, pre-COVID times. I think there's a little bit of a shakeup right now in terms of, of budgets and staff. But on the college level, there was definitely more, more potential for adoption. What was interesting at the college level, especially when I was at Catapult, you could deal with more than one team. So you might be able to, through the athletic department, help the football and basketball, and more importantly, the, what they call the non-revenue teams. Hey, we can also work with the women's soccer team or the lacrosse team or whatever it is. So there was a different relationship there, but there's, there's certainly more adoption on the college side than there used to be. Um, and then I think you're going to see that continue to move downstream and there's going to be opportunities within high school and, and youth. And a lot of that, you know, you mentioned Vlad with your, with your daughter playing volleyball and all the data, it's because the, it's getting easier to capture data, easier to use data. And quite frankly, the next generation is more open to engaging in things that maybe, you know, us old guys weren't doing way back when. Yeah, and one of the questions I asked that also is because I I know on the college level there's a there's a certain limit. You know, you you can only have so many coaches, and I think those coaches have to have you know certain roles and things like that. So so I was wondering, you know, you know, do you you know give this assignment to quote unquote a video coach? But then is that does that person understand analytics? Right? Yeah. Um. It 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 sort of make you know puts them in a different position, right? It does. And they, they, they normally got around that by just having more student managers, which yeah. is, uh, that's the way you get around it is, Hey, we can, we, we can only have a certain number of coaches, but we can have like all these student managers who were, you know, either not paid or barely, barely paid. And typically they're pretty smart kids too. So um, yeah. we found that as a good way to, you know, I wouldn't say get around that, but still get what you need. You, you mentioned earlier that, um, you know, the U.S. had this model of, you know, if you, you needed to uh, gain some muscle, get stronger, you see the, the strength coaching. If you got hurt, you go see the trainer. And then, and then now we're, we're, we've actually done some better things um, around the performance and training because there was leaders over in, in Europe 
Can you talk about some of the movements? I think I've read somewhere where Europe's getting better at in-game stats and strategy and usage there. Like, what are so? It's kind of like these things are flipping spaces where the U.S. where they were weak, they're now getting stronger. Can you kind of paint that picture for us a little bit? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I heard that quite a bit, having worked with international companies. That um, the U.S. is is has always been the leader in game analysis and scouting and and analyzing players in that sense and evaluating players whereas internationally they were a little bit weaker on that but very good on the performance side so i do think that there are opportunities for both and they are improving um i think here in the u.s where that started is is creating new roles so in addition to your strength coach and your trainer rather than just throwing this on them adding a new role a sports scientist role or this performance director role um, I, I would, it was, I was kind of half joking, but in the early days, most likely the people taking those roles in the U S had a foreign accent. They either came from Australia or they came from Europe and, and they, they took their, their expertise in other sports and they brought them to the U S you still see that most of the, the, the really, um, high performance directors here come from other sports or from other areas of the world, but it's improving and it's getting better. And I think, I think it's a good thing because using data to keep athletes safe, try to prevent injuries. And I say try because anything can happen, but putting them in a better position because we, we know what injuries can do to people's careers and, and quite frankly, how it can hurt, hurt the team. So I think you're definitely seeing that in us. And, and I think you're right in, in, in international sports, especially in, in global football, they're using in-game data much, much more than they used to. And there's some of that is learnings from the U S and some of that is the improvement of how you collect that. Data. So Brian, you'd mentioned earlier that, you know, the game is you start at the pro level and then things are moving to college and then it's just a natural business trend. are going to make this more available, democratize the technologies, make it available for high school and youth sports. Or can you, can you give us a little more specifics there as to what are the, some of the things you're seeing moving into that realm? And maybe there's even a recreational side to it too, for the weekend warriors that are out there. Yeah. I think it's really driven by two things. One is um, the, adoption broadly of technology and data again you know us us old guys didn't have access to, to cell phones and all these things when we were growing up and now that's what people you know live and breathe by so some of it is the broader adoption of technology across the market but then secondly it's the ability for some of these data capture things that normally were only the complicated ways of doing it for the professional and maybe the high college um, leagues is making it easier for people to use at all ends of the spectrum. So you combine those two things together and that's why you see much more adoption at the youth and the high school level. And, and I think what's interesting about it is it, it allows to not only collect more data to help athletes and help teams, but also the engagement, the ability to use your phone to collect data. There's a, there's a company called Home Court that, that you use your phone and you can collect all this data by shooting hoops on your driveway and engage with it in a very different way. So there's ways that you can collect and, and, and use data in a much simpler way, but I think it'll it'll make the youth in high school much more uh, adoption based on that. Brian, um, so this is big business and sports is a big business. Um, so, you know, can you give us a sense of, you know, how much of an investment this is for a, you know, professional or, a, you know, college club, you know, here and rest of the world, how much money, you know, some kind of a, you know, range in terms of they, they pay annually for, for these types of services? Sure. Yeah, it is a big business. And at the professional level, you know, teams are investing in, in a couple of different ways. One is with vendors that are giving them technology and, and typically teams are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars a year on different tools and technology, whether that be their video platforms, data capture, um, different tools to use it. 
The other investment they're making is in people. As I said earlier, they're adding you know, new roles, sports scientists, data analysts, um, programmers. So with all this new data, teams have to build their own data programming and software development teams in-house. Um, and you're seeing that more and more. So it is quite a, when you add all that up, it's millions of dollars a year at the club level. Uh, that's how important it is. And, and the second level of investment outside the teams is the leagues themselves. They're all investing in this technology, whether it be through vendors or through different relationships. And the reason they're all doing it is because it makes a difference for the team, but the leagues do it because they can also monetize it. So, you know, the NFL with the chips and the shoulder pads, they got, you know, other people to sponsor next gen stats. That's a business that they're, they're doing. So it is a business. It's about athletes. It's about making the game better. But at the end of the day, it's still a business about continuing to drive things forward and make more money. Are leagues setting certain standards around this? So in terms of, you know, I don't know, let's say the NBA, and I'm just using them as an example, you know, would, would they tell all their teams, you have to use these services, you have to adopt them uh, if, you know, this is sort of table stakes for being part of the league? Yeah, it's 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 a little bit of a blend. So in the early days when we were doing sport for you, we went by team by team and then we did a league-wide deal. They, they have a league-wide deal for certain things. Other things, they allow the teams to make their own decisions. So for the, I'd say the, the way to think about it is anything that happens in the game itself, the league is going to control. And, and they're going to control access. They're going to control the type of data. They want uniformity, but they also want to make sure that all the teams get access to the same things. In practice, it's up to the team to do what they want for the most part. So what technology you use, what data you use, and, and sometimes it's the same and sometimes it's not. So it kind of depends, but that's usually de the delineation that the, the leagues want to control what happens during the games and they leave the teams to do what they want in practice. Are you able to share with us some actual results, maybe some anecdotes, you know, things that uh, some teams have, have done and, and how it's improved their, you know, performance? Yeah. I mean, the one that, that, comes top to mind is there's a guy, Dave Tenney. He's now with uh, Austin, Austin FC in the MLS. When he was at the Seattle Sounders, um, he was a user of Catapult and he also used in-game uh, data off of cameras, not SportView from another vendor. And he would give me very specific examples about how he could see using data in practice and data in games when a guy was most prone to injury. And he would tell me when I could see a guy was hitting in the red zone and he would go to tell the coach. And sometimes the coach would say, yeah, but I really need him to play. And Dave would know, okay, he's probably going to get hurt. So now I'm going to get ready for recovering. Like a, a lot of examples of, of people on the performance side that would say, there's only so much I could do. I can tell the coach, here's the risk. And sometimes they just say, you know what? You know, it's the same thing. Like, Hey, your reliever's getting tired. Well, I'm going to push him for another inning. Sometimes that works. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, and so there are specific examples. I know in, in his time at the Sounders, uh, where he could use data to make very specific, and it, it took him years to get enough data to be able to do that. But he could say, "Hey, this guy might pull a hamstring because he's just his exertion is beyond what what it needs to be." Um, you know, some other examples within the within the football worlds. I think more and more of these teams are using data to make better in-game decisions. So again, going forward on fourth down, that teams never did that. They're doing that now with in their own zone. You know, you see teams going for it on fourth and one from their own 30. So they're running statistic and analysis to say, hey, you know, it, it's kind of crazy when you think about it, kind of like the NBA, you know, more three pointers versus two pointers, three is more than two. That, that seems very logical. And yet it took a long time for people to get there in the NFL. You know, you have four downs. 
why not use all four of them instead of just thinking you have three downs and then you got to punt? So if you think about it as four downs, you only have to get two and a half yards per play versus in three downs, you got to get 3.3 yards per play. It's a very, very different mindscape uh, when you start thinking about it that way. So there's ways in which this data start to influence people's decision making, but it takes time and it takes data and it takes the right people. Um, and one of the things I talk about a lot is you can't just know the data and the product, you got to know your coaches and what they're trying to do as well. You got to be able to speak their language, which again, everybody thinks, oh yeah, I know the sport. I'm telling you, the people that work at these professional college teams, I played small college basketball. I went to meet with NBA teams and realized how much I didn't know about the sport of, ba of basketball. So, you know, you got to be able to teach your sport, know what they're trying to accomplish and put your data and your analysis into the context of what they're trying to do. Brian, are, are you aware of any teams using this, this data and analytics to also negotiate and kind of, you know, set value for certain athletes? Absolutely. Um, again, that's the kind of stuff they don't normally tell me about, but you can, right. <laughs> you know, that's what they're doing. Um, especially the game data. Um, certainly baseball has been doing that for a long time. I think basketball and, and the NFL is doing it more and more. The, the, the touchy subject becomes some of this wearable athletic performance data. Uh, the NBA is a good example. They specifically in the, in the CBA said, you cannot use any of this wearable data for contract negotiations. Now, what I would say to that is, how do you not see it? Like, you know, if you see that- How do you unknow? How do you unknow right. un something you know, right? If, 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 yeah, you, if yeah. you see Look through your analysis, way. like Dave Tenney's able to do, that a guy might be injury prone, you can't forget that. Maybe you're not going to use that specifically in the negotiation, but you might just say, hey, this is all we can afford, right? So it is certainly something everybody's concerned about. And there's, I know that there's, think about college, you know, one interesting thing that I don't have any answer for yet, but this whole name image likeness, and how does data play into that? You know, can someone use the data off of their, you know, wearable device to, to somehow monetize that? I mean, that's the kind of thing that people are just starting to scratch the surface of. And I don't think we have any answers yet, but it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, no, no, for sure. So, Brian, as you look at this industry and kind of canvas over the next, you know, decade, a lot, you said a lot has happened in the last five, seven years. But if, but if you look at it sort of, you know, forward the next seven to 10 years, right, what do you see? What, what happens in soccer, you know, in Europe and Latin America and elsewhere, basketball, football, other sports? Um, what, what, is, what is sports going to look like with analytics? Um, I think you'll continue to see more unique data being captured. So, you know, some people think, wait, how much more could we capture? I think what you're going to get to is you're going to get to there's camera based tracking that can capture, you know, limbs. So you'll be able to know, you know, your arm movements, your leg movements, um, you know, again, how you translate that into all kinds of different products or analytics or how you analyze what you're doing. So I think you'll continue to see different data being captured. I think the speed of that data will get better and better. Um, and that's important for, as we talked about earlier, it's hard to use some of that data during the games, but I think you'll see more and more of that because technology will enable it. And quite frankly, the, the next generation of coaches will be much more open and, and used to that and they'll be looking for an edge. So I wouldn't be surprised to see in the next five years, people using really complex data on, on you know, tablets or computers to make in-game decisions. You don't really see that as much, but I think it will start to happen. And I think you'll see, as we talked earlier, it, it going downstream and being able to use this type of advanced technology that was usually only used for the professional teams who are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars, make it something that, you know, anybody can use at, in their home or in their youth game or their high school game. So it's, um, it's, I think we're still early 
as much as we've made a lot of progress in the sports analytics space, I think we're still early. There's, there's much more to go. Brian, thank you so much for your time. Stay safe. Thanks, you guys, too. Great talking to you. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate it. All right, guys. This has been a, a, a really fun show, and I'm going to wrap us up with our come on, man, for this week. So we're going to go live down into the SEC football. So we've got the head coach from the University of Mississippi, and last week's game against Auburn, a call went against his team. And um, after the game, he's griping about the officiating, and, and that's a no-no at all levels. We always hear about fines and things around that. And and Lane Kiffin, the head coach of the University of Mississippi, he gets popped with a $25,000 fine. Okay? And, and we've heard that before. And mostly coaches get fines. Players don't usually get fined for that, right? So the head coach at Mississippi – but but he just doesn't let it ride at that. He 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 then tweets about this, and of course we got to bring Twitter in here, guys. Um, but Mr. Kiffin he tweets out that he's going to pay that fine in pennies. <laughs> so 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 in pennies. So like the teenagers come out where he's leaving leaving the tip on the table in pennies. Right? He's going to be a teenager about this fine, and he's going to pay it in pennies. And he says, "Okay, can anyone help me find twenty five thousand pennies?" Well, for all you math majors out there, that's not going to be enough. <laughs> Missing um, a couple of zeros. Not going to be enough. Missing a couple right? of zeros so, there. So ever, ever the quick calculator, he, he, he puts out his next tweet, and he says, okay, 250,000 uh, pennies. Uh, Anybody on. got it out there? And, and, and is just a football coach would be, would be getting this wrong. It, it took oh, him one man. more crack. Uh, he finally then, a few minutes later, got the calculator out, and he figured out it's 2.5 million pennies that he would need to pay this fine. Yeah. Um, and who, who knows if he's going to back the Brinks truck up with those pennies, but, uh, I figured that would be a nice little, uh, come on man to wrap up the show with Mr. Lane Kiffin and his math skills on display. Un- unbelievable. How much did you say college <laughs> coach coaches get paid? We talked about this last week. There were some coaches getting oh, paid $10 million SEC a guys? year. Uh, yeah, Nick Saban is close to 10, <laughs> nine point something. Uh, you know, some of the, some of the top 10 guys are probably making above 5 million, right? right? right. All of them. Well, maybe, maybe but, you should but they're no Ian spend Graham. a little bit of that on, they're no uh, Ian Graham. on a math tutor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Analytics program. They should build their own analytics program. <laughs> so we'll see if he comes up with those pennies, but I thought that'd be a, a fun close to today's That's show. Great. This was a fun one, That's guys. That's great. That's great. Well, thank you guys for sticking with us and coming back and listening to to our show. If you like what you heard, please hit subscribe. Tell your friends, tell your families about us, and um, we'll see you guys next week. Good game, Mike. Look forward to it, Vlad. Mike, thank you guys for a great show. Absolutely. Good game. Cheers. Cheers.